This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Hello and welcome to Trumpet Hour this Friday, September 22nd. I'm Philip Nice with our Philadelphia Trumpet Writers. In studio, we have Jeremiah Jacques. Thanks for having me. We have Andrew Miller. Hello. In our studio in Britain, our Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. And Mihailo Zekic. Good to be here. This week, we're going to start with the Europe region. Mr. Palmer, take it away. We've had a lot of news this week. I guess just about everywhere, but especially in Europe, I think perhaps even two of the biggest stories of 2023 we may well be discussing today. Uh, first, probably the biggest trend of the year is Europe's migrant crisis. We had 7,000 show up in Lampedusa, an island with a population of 6,000. They arrived in just over 24 hours. This has really helped put the migrant crisis back on the agenda for Europe. I think we've talked about the migrant crisis being on the way back, coming back. It's back. Uh, and it really is reconfiguring Europe, and it's it's being fe- felt in European politics almost immediately. Uh, another story that just about in any other week would have been our main story, France and Germany produced a new plan for a multi-stage EU. There would be a core group of nations that would f- move forwards to closer integration, another layer that's more more like the current EU, and then another layer of associate members where countries like the United Kingdom could sit. And this is exactly the kind of 10-nation superpower EU then ruling over this wider area that we've talked a fair bit about on the trumpet. You can look at our trend section for that. Then we've had the British Prime Minister-in-waiting, Sir Keir Starmer, you know, very likely to win the next election, traveling around Europe, talking about bringing Britain closer to Europe. We also found this week he's been in touch with former U.S. President Barack Obama and been getting his advice, which raises the question of how involved he's been on that. Uh, I mean, this kind of inner, outer EU, it's been suggested before. This time again, it's just a suggestion. It's not something that they're actively moving forwards on at this point but still a very significant development. Another new story that had it happened in just about any other week over the summer would have been our main story. Uh, A new poll in Germany shows far-right attitudes rising, the percentage that hold extreme right beliefs. For the last 10 years, I've I've seen this poll going back about a decade. It's kind of bounced around about 1.5, 2% kind of have extreme right views. This year, it's 8%. You've got a further 20% that are kind of in a gray zone views. You've got, for example, 6% that want a Führer, a strong leader to take charge of Germany. So uh, significant right-wing attitudes growing in Germany. Again, this is in large part a delayed consequence of the 2015-2016 migrant crisis. Now we've got that migrant crisis back in the news. What, uh, What more is this going to do? This each of these topics I'm I'm expecting you to go on and on about, but you're you're cramming them into the rundown here at the beginning for the sake of devoting your main topic to something that is, I admit, surprising to me. But you say it's one of the main stories of 2023. Well, it's a war. I think wars always make it uh, up there. But yeah, you've had for about 35 years, you've had Azerbaijan and Armenia fighting over a piece of territory. And it seemed like that fight ended this week and that Azerbaijan just came straight out and won. It's, I mean, it it was kind of a pretty stunning thing. They've laid the groundwork for it over the last year or two. 
this looks like we're redrawing the map this year. Uh, I guess on paper, this territory, Nagorno-Karabakh, has genuinely been, uh, I think, drawn as Azerbaijanian territory, though Armenia has had de facto control. But they they won. So this region, you may recall, it was in the news a couple of years ago. You had a big fight here where uh, Azerbaijan invested heavily in drone technology. They used this to beat the Armenians and win some concessions and then the war kind of ended and russian peacekeepers moved in and 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 that was that since then they've really worked to kind of cement control of some of those areas that they have had to use that to effectively blockade nagorno-karabakh establish their control out of the only road in and out this is a very mountainous region so you're thinking about mountain passes being very significant and then just a, a pretty short war, basically, military operation this week, lasting just a day or two. And the entire Nagorno-Karabakh army, it seems like they've surrendered, laid down their weapons. And um, Azerbaijan is moving in. I think this is something you're going to have echoes of, repercussions rolling out. Uh, I mean, I think we can unpack a couple of those. One is, this is not good for Russia. This time last year, it would have been an unmitigated disaster for Russia. I think Russia has, has done some damage control here. But Armenia is basically part of Russian NATO. So you know, this is this would be like Estonia being invaded. Uh, like one of these NATO members where Russia has a treaty obligation to defend Armenia. And they failed. And like I said, about a year ago, I think this would be catastrophic. Uh, what, However... Armenia has been moving away from Russia in recent months. Uh, and so I think there's you know, there, there's an open question. Could Russia have defended Armenia against Azerbaijan? Uh, the fact is they didn't try. They do have a plausible excuse for not trying. This moving away, uh, okay, they've got a paper commitment, but they can at least send a message, hey, you move away from us uh, and we'll not... Um, you know, will not get involved. But it does throw some big question marks over, I'd say, the entirety of post-Soviet foreign policy. So much of that has been about Russia creating these strong relationships with the former Soviet countries and, and having these dictators and kind of like, well, you stay close to Russia and we'll keep you safe. This does throw question marks over Russia's ability to do that. And I think it does up the pressure on Russia to get the Ukraine war finished more quickly. Uh, it shows how much, that Azerbaijan would even attempt something like this, shows how much Russian prestige has been hurt by their failure to quickly conquer Ukraine. And I wrote on this a year ago when things were building up here. And like I said, the situation has changed since then. But I think it does raise the question, would you see nuclear weapons? Uh, I mean, it, it is it is starting to get very serious for Russia because... If people believe they cannot trust Russia's security and guarantees, you're talking about the collapse of the post-Soviet system, the collapse of the post-Soviet Russian alliance system. Uh, um, the, this, this is a conflict that's been frozen for 35 years and it ended. It didn't just defrost. Like It looks like Azerbaijan finished it. There's a lot of these conflicts in the post-Soviet state. You know, Stalin deliberately drew these borders so that different people's minorities would be left in different countries to destabilize all of these countries around Russia should they ever become independent. 
now you've got everyone else looking at, well, maybe I could KO my opponent right now. Maybe I can, I can knock them out. I can win it because Russia is completely bogged down in Ukraine. So I think uh, you've got that angle. The Caucasus, the Caucasus have just been a significant area for thousands of years. This is kind of the intersection point between Europe and the Middle East and Asia. When you had the Roman Empire going to war with the Parthian Empire and this kind of clash of two ancient superpowers, it took place in Armenia. It took place in the Caucasus. Because if you want to transport large armies in this in this area and feed them and water them, that's the easiest place to do it. And so, of course, we're watching very closely the relationship between the Europe and the Middle East. And so that means what's going on here plays an important role. And then... You know, I think just fundamentally, whenever borders are redrawn by force, this makes Europe very nervous. So in terms of immediate ramifications, there's things we can talk about in terms of you know, Russia, the post-Soviet space. I think there are more long-term and less concrete, more abstract ramifications where a country just redrew its borders in a week. And there's a lot of other countries that would like to redraw their borders. Uh, there are kind of strong norms against doing this. Russia weakened that with invading Ukraine. Um, Azerbaijan now, a, a country with a much smaller stature, just kind of got away with with settling things. Uh, I think it's a simple, it's a signal that we're moving into a much less stable world. You know, this is a world where we have tremors and earth and, and, and earth geopolitical earthquakes, you know, wars and rumors of wars. This is that kind of a world now where violence is and increasingly an option to solve your disputes with your neighbors. And, and a big part of that is the, the, the decline of the United States, that it has kept the peace for 70, 80 years, and we're moving into this more, or into this less stable world. So you mentioned that one of the angles on this is a, a black eye for Russia and for Vladimir Putin. Where do you see this going in the uh, near term? This is where... I think things get a lot easier with the light of Bible prophecy. And there's, I think there are a lot of analysts talking about, well, what's happening? You know, where do we go now? Are we going to see a collapse of the Russian empire and even you know, the Russian federation, a federation of different peoples, different ethnicities, ultimately kept together by fear of the core? Could we see this collapse? You know, those are the kind of questions that, that people are asking. And we know from the Bible, the answer is no that Russia is going to remain a major power. In fact, it's going to reassert itself as as kind of a, a really dominant power. And so this situation shows Russia has to react to save face. And we know from Bible prophecy, well, they are. They'll be pushing hard for some victories. Uh, we've seen a lot of cruelty from Russia and Ukraine. I mean, personally, I think we could well see more cruelty. And like I mentioned, maybe even the thing, things like the use of nuclear weapons as they try and turn this situation around. So as we're in this new era, as you're mentioning, of warfare and rumors of war, uh, where would you guide a Trumpet Hour listener to become a Trumpet Hour or a Trumpet.com reader as far as something to read about this? Well, I think one place to go is Nuclear Armageddon is at the door, a booklet that we have that just is a great summary of end time Bible prophecy. You know, I think this is one of those stories where it has prophetic ramifications. It has global ramifications. It's not like the, the, the Armenia's war with Az or Azerbaijan's war with Armenia was prophesied specifically, but 
this book certainly helps put it in context with these end time prophecies that we would see increased violence. You know, I think we've all, another place to go would be just our very recent trumpet print edition that uh, trumpet editor in chief Gerald Flurry had about how fear of Russia is reshaping Europe. You know, you'll see if you, once you start to see more wars kind of ripple on out from the Ukraine invasion, that really does put the onus on other countries to arm and to increase their militaries. We're seeing that happening in Europe. You know, all around the board, we're mo- we're seeing the world move into this more dangerous phase. And that booklet is a uh, a good place to understand what the Bible says, and it's a great place to go for reassurance as we move into this more dangerous phase as well. In a world that is becoming scarier, where war is becoming a more common feature, I, that book shows how it is going to be temporary, how this time will be brought to a close and how it's leading to a time of just absolutely unprecedented peace. That booklet is Nuclear Armageddon is at the door and that's available at thetrumpet.com. Our next region is the Middle East. Mihailo Zekic, give us the rundown on the Middle East. Yes, so the United Nations General Assembly Summit started on Tuesday and continued for several days after that. A lot of big uh, things happened there with Ramakit for the Middle East. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu finally met U.S. President Joe Biden. It wasn't at the White House like they've been pushing to. Uh, Biden gave the usual finger waggings about the Palestinian issues and judicial reform, etc., etc. Arguably more uh, important was Netanyahu's first ever meeting with Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Both leaders have been in power for a long time, and so it's interesting that They've only met now. Uh, They're not generally that good friends with each other. Erdogan, in the meeting, gave a uh, more conciliatory tone towards Israelis, talking about future cooperation. We've talked before about how uh, the nations of Israel are going to get into trouble for trusting countries like Turkey too much. And uh, Saudi Arabia, or the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, had an interview with Fox News Brett Baer asked uh, Prince Mohammed, uh, what would Saudi Arabia do if Iran, Saudi Arabia's regional adversary, got the nuclear bomb? And he said, quote, if they get one, we have to get one for security reasons and the balance of power, end quote. Normally, uh, a statement like that would be quite a bit of a bombshell, no pun intended, but because of... uh, Shall we say some actions they've been doing and trying to get a nuclear program? They basically already declared this, so it's not too big news. And on Tuesday, the swap, the prisoner exchange between the United States and Iran that we've talked about had finally taken place. Uh, that's the same prisoner swap we mentioned on the last program about 9 11. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken uh, afterwards did state, state that the money they promised Iran, there's no way in guaranteeing that it won't be put into military use. So so much for all the safeguards they were talking about all the time. So, yeah, a lot happening in the Middle East this week. So what's your main story? Yes, yeah, so the main story this week is a bit of an odd one. Uh, on September 20th, CNN released an exclusive report talking about uh, Ukraine launching several drone attacks and a ground force operations on Russian-backed forces. You might think... A, why is that such big news? B, why am I talking about it for the Middle East? Well, the big reason is where it happened. It was in Sudan, and the forces were Sudanese rebels backed by the Russian government. 
uh, CNN acquired some video footage as well as uh, apparent confirmation from Ukrainian sources. An anonymous source that uh, they cited said that Ukrainian special services were likely responsible. Meanwhile, a spokesman for Ukraine's defense intelligence would neither confirm nor deny Ukraine's involvement in Sudan, which usually means they confirm it. Uh, Sudan, a uh, little bit of backstory, we've talked about it before in this program, is in the middle of a civil war between the government and the Rapid Support Forces, which was a, uh, a militia originally part of the government, but now they're trying to rebel against it. The Rapid Support Forces, or the RSF, are sponsored by Wagner Group, Russia's uh, uh, secret mercenary group that we've talked about on this program before. Ukraine, of course, fights Wagner on Ukrainian soil, but looks like they're taking the battle to Africa, which, I mean, it's not something I ever anticipated, uh, Sudan becoming a proxy war between Russia and Ukraine. But with how interconnected the world is, you never know where world events are going to take you. So it is shocking that uh, we have this uh, kind of spillover, and and I don't know, maybe it shouldn't be so shocking that wars do spill over, but we've been so used to that, uh, I don't know, them being contained or, or far away. But uh, we're starting to see some, uh, some uh, spillover effects. Where do you see this going, and, and where can our listeners read more? Well, like Mr. Palmer's story, there is no specific Bible prophecy that Ukraine will invade Sudan. But with that being said, we have to ask, what is Ukraine, a country that's struggling with the war in its own, this tiny country in Eastern Europe that for the longest time didn't really have too much geopolitical muscle? They had, say, trade relations with grain and that kind of thing. But it's not like when Ukrainian soldiers started marching, everybody around the world started trembling in their feet. Or it's not like they had much interest in Africa in the first place. What are they doing there? Well, in this case, you could say the friend of my enemy is my enemy, and they're going to attack this rebel group that's sponsored by Russia, even though Sudan, since independence, has had basically nonstop history of unrest and oppression, and it's going to continue regardless how this war ends, even though even if the RSF gains power in Khartoum, it's highly unlikely they're going to be a particularly bad threat to Ukraine or that they're going to become a major player in the Ukraine war. But because Russia is indirectly linked to this conflict, because the, what's happening in Sudan has ties with Russia, that all of a sudden makes it Ukraine's business. For the longest time, you, you, know, you didn't really have this kind of great power competition in Africa. You may have had Cold War, communist versus capitalist type uh, pushes, but it didn't really have different countries that normally don't have a stake in that part of the world getting this involved in Africa since colonial times, since, what, 120, 130 years ago. Now, this kind of thing, it's really normal. We've talked before on this program about France uh, having problems in Niger, about Russia having uh, problems in West Africa. You have countries like Turkey, Iran, the United States, of course. They all have stakes in propping up these little African regimes and taking sides in their little civil wars. And you really have a modern scramble for Africa going on. This little revelation from Ukraine is a microcosm of that. Now, where Bible prophecy specifically factors into this is a passage we go to all the time in this program, Daniel 11, verses 40 to 43. 
talks about the start of World War III between a king of the north or Europe and a king of the south or radical Islam led by Iran, two powers that aren't actually on the African continent. The war starts with them going to each other. And if you look at the countries stated to be allied with Iran, like Egypt, Libya, Ethiopia, they're all in Africa. There's all these countries mentioned in Africa. Not only that, but Europe is prophesied to attack Iran and its allies like a whirlwind from all sides, meaning Europe will have a presence in Africa too. In other words, we're going to start seeing more outside players getting interested in what ha what happens in Africa, getting interested in what happens in these little local wars, wanting their own piece of the pie and sucking Africa into their bigger conflicts. This is happening right now with Russia and Ukraine, and Bible prophecy says that this is going to happen with even bigger wars to come. If our listeners would like to learn more about this, we have an article in our most recent print issue of The Trumpet called Why Niger is a Catastrophe for Europe. That's Why Niger is a Catastrophe for Europe. It talks specifically about what's happening with Europe and West Africa rather than Sudan. But it's still you can still apply the general points in that article to what's happening there and really all over the whole continent. That was why Niger is a catastrophe for Europe. And I appreciate the, what you said there at the end, that uh, when, when you characterize something as a little war, um, you know, obviously for those experiencing it, for suffering it, I mean, that, that continent in particular racked for generations, uh, for centuries. You talked about the scramble for Africa. Um, people are, are suffering there and, and having... Uh, a tribulation experience, if you will, every day. And to characterize it as little is, is only to do so in relation to the big wars that are forecasted for the future that will affect everyone. So that, uh, that suffering is something not to uh, take lightly, of course, and that's the whole purpose of this program is to, to warn against those smaller wars and the bigger wars to come. You're listening to Trumpet Hour on KPCG 101.3. We'll be right back. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. The Week in Review. Welcome back to Trumpet Hour. Our next region to cover is Asia. Jeremiah Jacques, give us an update on Asia, if you would. Sure, yes. Russia and China held security talks in Moscow on Wednesday. So representatives from the two sides met there and just uh, discussed ways to deepen strategic cooperation between their countries. So it's just another sign that this axis of Russia and China is looming large on the world stage, and they're working to make it larger all the time. Then uh, an interesting story out of South Korea here. On Thursday, South Korea uh, announced that they had raided some U.S. military bases just to search for illegal drugs, and 17 soldiers are now being investigated. So South Korea, you know, it's been a staunch ally to the U.S. for decades now, a treaty ally. And we stationed more than 28,000 troops there. But the U.S. troops have not always obeyed the South Korean laws, and it has sometimes led to some serious tensions. So 
We don't yet know what the outcome of these raids and investigations will be, but the trumpet does expect South Korea to most likely break from the U.S. at some point, and these kinds of developments could contribute to that. And then one more short one here about India and Russia. The two held some high-level meetings this week to try to make it quicker and cheaper to transport goods to each other, even going through the Arctic Ocean to do so. So they're planning to better develop the uh, the Northern Sea Route, which goes over Russia's north coast, and also the Eastern Maritime Corridor, which takes ships east from India, past China, then up to Russia's Pacific coast. So, you know, the U.S. often tries to give India all kinds of preferential treatment, just to try to win it over to America's side of things. But moves like this show that India has no interest in being America's lapdog. And even while the West tries to actively reduce ties with Russia to punish it for the war, and even while the West tries to actively reduce ties with Russia to punish it for the war on Ukraine, India is giving Russia all kinds of support and even working with these trade route plans to draw even closer to the Russians. So several trends there you see where the uh, the uh, nations of Asia kind of congealing. There, there's a lot to overcome there. I mean, that that's not to overlook. All, there's considerable uh, things to overcome between these, these great powers especially, but all these uh, Asian nations. But uh, what we're looking for as ever, is the the cooperation and increasing cooperation of those, especially at the expense of the United States. What is your main topic for uh, this week? Yeah, the big one I wanted to talk about is that a member of Russia's ruling party, Evgeny Fedorov, has just prepared a bill for the state Duma. And this bill proposes to essentially restore the Russian Empire to an expanded size that would match the borders of the former Soviet Union. So his bill describes the conflicts that are often happening in some of these former Soviet nations, uh, including the conflict between Azerbaijan and Armenia that Mr. Palmer just talked about. And Fedorov said, because of all those simmering conflicts, it would be beneficial to Russia and geopolitically logical to bring all of these nations back under Russia's control, even if that means that Russia needs to go to war with most of them to make that happen. Fedorov also said that uh, all of the former Soviet republics left the USSR illegally, and that that gives Russia a legal right to reassert control over them. He said that Russia has already started this process with the former Soviet nation of Georgia, and the former Soviet nation of Ukraine. And he did mention Armenia as well in there. And he said that all of that is only the start. One section of this bill says, Russia is replacing the Soviet Union. We are the Soviet Union. Accordingly, we, as the owners of the territory of the Soviet Union, have the right to restore the territorial integrity of the Soviet Union, which we did in Donetsk, Luhansk, Crimea, etc. End quote. So <clears throat> this... Uh, State Duma deputy seems to be saying kind of the quiet part out loud here, you know, but but really, even if we look just at what Vladimir Putin has said over the years, and more importantly, at Russia's actions in several former Soviet nations over the years, then you see that Evgeny Fedorov's view is not some fringe belief. This truly is the goal of Vladimir Putin's Russia to pull the Soviet nations back in, not just Ukraine. And, and this adds to the proof that giving Russia part of Ukraine right now would not solve this problem. You know, even, 
even Russia, even if Russia is given the east of Ukraine and Crimea, <clears throat> it probably would bring a temporary peace. But that would be a very temporary peace. And it would be to Russia's long-term advantage because it would give them a chance to regroup and refortify and then take more of Ukraine. And then from there, other nations too, just as this uh, State Duma deputy is saying. And there is some, you know, some Ukraine fatigue among Westerners, especially in the MAGA crowd in the U.S. So the support for Ukraine may not last much longer. And if it does dry up, then men like Fedorov and Putin will be able to move forward with the next phase of their plan. So it's an interesting development, and we'll uh, we'll have to keep an eye on what happens there. That's that's an out. That's a bold statement to make as a diplomat or as, as a, not a diplomat, but a, a major politician. Um, it's, uh, it's say, I mean, we will reconquer the Soviet states by force, by more of what you're seeing in Ukraine if necessary. Uh, and when those things are said out loud, as you said, um, it's not by accident, and it's it's to uh, probably to test the waters. And uh, and uh, several have people have said when when they tell you what they're going to do and what they want, you should believe them. And right. <laughs> Vladimir Putin has has said almost you know that exact same thing, or indicated that exact same thing, um, talking about in in glowing terms about that reprehensible repressive regime that. It's easy to forget what it is that that, that regime did. But Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry has recently even talked about uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who can tell you all about uh, what that regime, that evil empire, uh, is really like. Uh, so give us, give us the uh, medium term on this and, and where, to where to read more. Sure, yeah. Well, uh, I would recommend The Prophesied Prince of Russia, Mr. Fleury's booklet on this topic, and, and that really takes a deep dive into the history and the prophecy and shows how it's all intersecting. And it's mostly built around Ezekiel 38, verse 2, this passage in the Bible that talks about a figure in the modern era who is described in the New King James Version as the Prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. And Mr. Fleury has said that uh, Rosh should be viewed as a variation of the name Russia, Meshek as a name for Moscow, Tubal as a name for the Russian city of Tobolsk, which was, was once considered to be basically Russia's eastern capital. And in that booklet, he writes about this figure and the specifics of these, you know, these names. And Mr. Fleury says it's clear to him that this is describing Vladimir Putin. And he says that the way this is written with those three different names for different parts of Russia... He says that that shows that Putin would go on to conquer more of the former Soviet territory. So I'll just read a little bit from this booklet. It says, The use of all three names, Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, shows that this is an individual ruler of all the peoples of Russia from the west to the east. The reference to the cities of Moscow and Tobolsk helps us to see how vast Russian territory is in these latter days. This giant swath of land indicates that the prince will probably conquer more nations of the former Soviet Union. End quote. So this uh, this booklet was written all the way back in 2017, even before Russia's current full-scale invasion of Ukraine was, you know, underway. And now we see Russia's state Duma saying, after it conquers Ukraine, it does plan to go on to other former Soviet nations. So it all it all shows the accuracy of this forecast, and um, 
if any listener would like to understand the details of that, I hope that they'll order a free copy of that booklet, The Prophesied Prince of Russia. The Prophesied Prince of Russia. Well, thank you, Jeremiah, for that update on Asia. And this week's reason why The Prophesied Prince of Russia is a, a remarkable booklet by the editor-in-chief. So we move on to our fourth segment, which is Anglo-America. Andrew Miller, you are watching Anglo-America every day, and there is a lot to watch. Uh, give us your top stories this week. Plenty of bad economic news in Anglo-America this week. The child poverty rate has more than doubled from 5.2% last year to 12.4% this year. Uh, at the same time, the national debt has hit a new historic high of $33 trillion this week. And prices for just about everything are set to go up soon as a 20-year-old drought in Panama is drying up the lake that the Panama Canal uses to fill its lock systems. So those are a couple of things to keep an eye on. And, and uh, if you don't keep an eye on it, you'll feel the effects anyway. Uh, but what's your main story for this week? I did give some serious thought to uh, dwelling on these economic problems for my main story this week, but then decided to uh, uh, spend a little bit of time instead talking about how the many of the people responsible for this economic train wreck uh, are not being held to account, uh, but rather are given some pretty plum, cushy national security jobs. Uh, one of the big stories out this week is the, uh, the Department of Homeland Security is announcing the creation of a new Homeland Intelligence Experts Group uh, that is going to be advising uh, the United States on um, how to protect the homeland. Uh, if you uh, were holding your breath that this new Homeland Intelligence Experts Group was going to have some keen insights on securing the Mexican border, um, don't keep doing that. It'll cause brain damage uh, because you're looking at, like, who's going to be on this group? Who are the gray experts that we're going to be looking to to uh, to secure the homeland? Well, top of the list is Obama's former counterterrorism advisor and CIA chief, John Brennan. Uh, Obama's former national director, uh, James Clapper. And uh, a whole bunch of other people you're probably not as familiar with. Uh, unless you read the list of 59 intelligent signatories condemning the Hunter Biden laptop as Russian misinformation. So basically the whole cast of characters who helped Obama try to frame Trump for Russia collusion uh, while simultaneously claiming that the legitimate primary sources about Biden family corruption on the Hunter Biden laptop were also Russian information, uh, e even though both of those things, the fact that Donald Trump colluded with Russia and the fact that Russia tried to frame Hunter Biden have been thoroughly disproven. Um, that whole cast of characters <laughs> is now being put on a new Homeland uh, Intelligence Experts group that's probably not going to have much to say about how to secure the Mexican border, but will probably have a whole bunch to say about how the Russians are trying to influence the 2024 election. Yes, the timing is very interesting there. I mean, if you love the constitutionality of the Homeland Security Agency, uh, you're going to love the 
Homeland Security Experts Group. I, I can reverse engineer your decision-making process, though. Uh, I understand that whenever you see the name John Brennan come back into the news or you see James Clapper come back into the news or, like you said, these other lesser-known officials, um, you need to keep an eye on that and you need to watch what, what they're doing. Sometimes they lay low, and that's dangerous enough uh, when they gear up to, to start exerting themselves openly again. Uh, that's uh, also something to watch out for. No, that's absolutely correct. If you read any of the better analysis of the Russia gay uh, scandal, uh, especially uh, Andrew McCarthy's book, Ball of Collusion, um, which is one of the better analysis of that scandal, it really highlights in a way that I didn't understand before that, that John Brennan, even though he's only one of many intelligence chiefs, one of the more important ones as head of the CIA, but he was really like Obama's right-hand man throughout his eight years in office. The Arab Spring, the Iran nuclear deal, the Russiagate scandal. Um, he, he was relying on these foreign intelligence agencies. And as much as Obama relied on the FBI, there's that example in Ball of Collusion where the FBI agent Peter uh, Strzok was uh, looking at uh, ramping up the crossfire hurricane uh, scandal with some of his own ideas and John Brennan kind of just shot him down and said the White House is running this basically letting the FBI know that he's like no the, the orders go from Barack Obama himself to me John Brennan to all of you people whether you're in the CIA or not he's like even FBI people are like normally it's like normally FBI people report to the FBI the FBI is supposed to do domestic police work the CIA is for foreign police work but even the Russia collusion you have the director of the CIA coming in and ordering FBI people around saying that like no it's like I I'm not just the head of the CIA my my instructions come directly from Barack Obama to let whoever works for the federal government know exactly what they're expected to do and there's a message in the fact that John Brennan is back, that James Clapper is back. I mean, that's that's sending a message, like you said. Uh, I mean, these these are these are dangerous people who were used heavily by Barack Obama, uh, destructive people. I mean, Clapper is the one who said right in front of Congress that they don't spy on millions of Americans when that's absolutely what they've been doing. And now it's like this fact of life that everybody knows. Um, We've, I mean, Trump and Daly's covered Clapper a lot and, and Brennan both. But there's a message in the fact that they're back. They're in plum jobs, as, as you said. Their names are on the open letter saying the Hunter Biden laptop is, is Russian disinformation, has hall, all the hallmarks of Russian dis disinformation. Disregard it, especially when you go into the voting booth to choose between Hunter Biden's father and Donald Trump. It's defiant that they could do that. Everyone can see it. It's like Clapper in front of Congress and the world. Everyone can see that they're lying and they're just exerting their will. And they win anyway. <laughs> right. Plus, John Brennan is actually, uh, since he retired as CIA director, became a national security analyst for CNN, a salaried job that he still holds uh, even though he's now working on this Homeland Intelligence Experts Group, which is a government position. So he's actually, uh, as of now, like John Brennan, he's he's like the poster child for um, 
media government collusion is that he's actually currently an employee of the Department of Homeland Security and CNN simultaneously. He works for both directly for Homeland Security and CNN at the same time. And so if you see CNN reporting on a story about Homeland Security, there's a little bit of a conflict of interest there. It's not an unbiased opinion. The statement from the Bible that you sent me in preparation for the show is saying exactly what we're saying in in, uh, Bible language. Yeah, I wanted to highlight Isaiah 59 and verse 14, an end time of prophecy, which applies to America that says, judgments turned away backward and justice stands afar off. The truth is fallen in the street and equity cannot enter. Yeah, I've got like the CNN logo in my mind right right now because it's you're you're looking at that like truth has fallen in the street. It's like these big media corporations, conglomerates that Americans are relying on to figure out what's happening, are literally being staffed by government spies, people employed by either em- currently employed or formerly employed by the CIA, the FBI, the NSA, the DHS, are working for. MSNBC, CNN, and a number of other networks. Like I said, the John Brennan CNN one's the one that stands out as probably the most significant conflict of interest there. But I I wrote an article a few years back that highlighted as many as I could think of at the time. So like a couple dozen. Uh, I think there have been many people who've even been better digging into their mind of that there's actually literally hundreds of former government intelligence agencies working in mainstream media, making sure that the the truth stays fallen in the streets and the equity can't can't get on the gate. And the uh, book you're pointing to in your uh, email to me was America Under Attack. I mean, it's just, it's so true. It's, and when, when you see that the attack is on truth itself, realize that when you turn on the news, what it is that you're consuming there. You're listening to Trumpet Hour on 101.3 KPCG. We'll be right back. You're listening to Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome back to Trumpet Hour. This last segment is our roundtable discussion, and we uh, we always talk a little bit beforehand about what will make for the best discussion at the end of the show. And this week, what really stood out to me was this topic of censorship, of freedom of speech and the battle over freedom of speech. And I don't know if some people sometimes think about freedom of speech as, well, that's for you know, firebrand commentators or, you know, shock jocks or really opinionated people who just have to, just have to you know, get their opinions out there. I, I'm just a normal person, you know, living my life. Uh, so censorship or freedom of speech doesn't matter that much to me. But I exhort you <laughs> to not be one of those people because freedom of speech is akin to freedom of thought. And when you see a, a government that abridges, manipulates, destroys freedom of speech in a country. It's not just to uh, remove certain statements from the public discourse. It's to control people. Uh, It's to control what you think about a virus, for example. It's to control what you think about a chemical concoction 
inserted into your body, for example, freedom of speech matters to everyone who is under a government anywhere. And it's been a real battle out there this week and recently over freedom of speech. I think one of the biggest examples this week, or the one that's gotten the most attention at least, is probably the controversy around uh, Russell Brand. Someone I really didn't want to be talking about when this news story first broke. I kind of remember when I was in high school, Russell Brand was like the communist's favorite celebrity. He was a far left, um, pretty shocking, um, alleged comedian. Uh, but anyway, he's had some accusations against him of, of sexual assault. And what is remarkable to me is then that the British government stepped in and sh well, YouTube decided to shut him down. And then the British government stepped in and started pressuring TikTok and Rumble to shut him down as well. He's not been convicted. He has not been found guilty of anything. There are accusations. Maybe he will be found guilty. To be honest, from the little I know of him, it would not surprise me at all if he was guilty. But I find the idea of a government stepping in there with no due process, with no opportunity for an individual to defend himself, with no safeguards, just because they feel like somebody doesn't deserve free speech, to be able to write to businesses and say, you need to take this person off your platform, or we strongly suggest you take... You know, that, is, that is pretty chilling. And... You know, it's it's intellectually fashionable to disparage Magna Carta and Britain's fundamental rights. But, I mean, it did bring to mind Magna Carta and some of those foundational rights of freedom that, that England has, that America's founding fathers very consciously built upon. I mean, the 39th clause of Magna Carta, it's still part of British law today. It says, no free man shall be seized or imprisoned or stripped of his rights or possession possessions or outlawed or exiled or deprived of his standing in any other way, nor will we proceed with force against him or send others to do so, except by the lawful judgment of his equals or by the law of the land. You know, it's a foundational principle of freedom that governments just don't move arbitrarily against people they don't like. And that is what happened in this case. And I think what gives even more weight to these letters that they were writing off to Rumble and things like that is the UK's online services bill passed this week that gives the government more power, that gives them the power to level massive fines against companies that fall afoul of judgment. There are some bits in there that are quite good. I mean, we're not advocating, I guess, for absolutely unlimited free speech in terms of there are very obvious limits like pornography that do need to be restrained in a, to have a moral society. And some of this online services bill does place restrictions or make it harder for children to see pornography. And are there probably changes to the law that needed to have been in place a long time ago. But it also gives another weapon to the government. So when this is a government writing to Rumble and saying, take them off, take him off air, there are potentially teeth behind some of those threats as well. And they just this week passed a law that gives themselves more teeth. Yeah, it's absolutely chilling when you just just like take a step back and take a bigger picture overview of this. Because in America, actually, if you stop and think about it, our, our freedom of speech uh, and freedom of religion are in the same amendment. They, they're the First Amendment is bundled. Freedom of a speech, freedom of assembly and freedom of religion uh, are all in one. And it's not um, 
a coincidence that they decided to package it that way because it's like when you're talking about freedom of speech, um, let's say like out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, you're really almost taught, you're verging on like freedom of thought, like freedom of religion, freedom of speech. It's like it's how you worship, it's how you talk, it's how you think that they're trying to regulate. And when the, um, uh, when Thomas Jefferson and James Madison were defending <laughs> those freedoms, they made the very logical point that said if there's a creation then there must be a creator. And if the created human beings have free will or free moral agency, then their creator must have given that to them. Uh, and so if any human tyrant tries to come and take away your free moral agency, send in the thought police, uh, regulate uh, your freedom to worship, your freedom of religion, your freedom of speech, it's... Um, it's really just one of the most tyrannical things you can do because you're 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 not just uh, saying that hey don't break the speed limit or or break some other arbitrary human laws like you're actually trying to control like what you think and who you are. It, it, it's inherently totalitarian. Yeah, I fully agree with that. Very uh, very astute observation there, and and I think that this topic of free speech it is a complex one, especially for more conservative leaning people, because in this broken world, it means allowing great quantities of dark and destructive material into the conversation. You know, I remember back in 2015 when some Muslim terrorists in Paris were very offended by the cartoons of the Charlie Hebdo satirical newspaper. And so these Muslim terrorists got some AB2 rifles and submachine guns, and they went into the office of this Charlie Hebdo newspaper in downtown Paris, and they opened fire on the staff, killing 12 people and injuring 11. These Muslims were not in favor of free speech. And so they killed and maimed all those people in order to censor them. And I remember at the time, some conservatives feeling a little confused, saying, well, you know, Charlie Hebdo really is utterly crass and irreverent and disgusting. And there's no question that that's true. And some of the material is about as vulgar as anything you could imagine, mocking every religion in the most humiliating way, including the Christian faith. And so some were saying, is the world really worse off for having lost these people who were spewing out all kinds of irreverent, even pornographic filth? And so that just shows how this topic is more complicated than we may initially think, because if the Philadelphia Trumpet wants to be free to print its message, and if other conservative publications want to be free to question the mainstream media, then a free speech absolutist would say Charlie Hebdo also has to be free to publish their lurid satire. And it means that if you want to have a copy of the Ten Commandments on display in your school, you know, a free speech absolutist would say you also have to be willing to have a copy of the seven tenets of the satanic temple. You know, that's what truly free speech in this dark and broken world means. So it's a double-edged sword because at the same time as it cuts a path for a conservative, maybe family-friendly message, it also allows uh, all kinds of perversion into the discourse. And there have been some thinkers who have understood that. There's the famous quote that's often attributed to Voltaire. It says, I disapprove of what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. 
So, you know, Voltaire understood that it has to go both ways. But in the world today, it seems that both sides really do want censorship, but they just want to be the one who decides what is censored. So we have more and more demagogues on the left and on the right who want free speech for themselves, but censorship for their opponents. And they don't seem to understand that it's a double-edged sword. I think there is a view from higher up that does help simplify some of the complications, though. I mean, I think Jeremiah is right. Is that there is some things that aren't straightforward when you're living in a in in this this present evil world. But we have a, a book, No Freedom Without Law, where Trumpet editor in chief Gerald Flurry has quite a lot to say about you know the subject of freedom and things like that. And he makes the he talks about pornography being legalized in that book in the name of free speech. And he he wrote in there, the fact is, the more pornography we have, the less freedom that we have. And that really, if you look at, well, what is true freedom? uh, He wrote in there, the drug pushers, the pornographers do not have free, uh, do not have true freedom. You know, there is a, the Bible talks about sin enslaving, you know, law-breaking enslaving. And we see this most plainly in, in things that like drugs and things that do produce these crippling addictions. But all kinds of sin produce, you know, they enslave us. They, they, we, we end up going and, and using our time or, or wasting our lives ultimately on, on things that are not productive and things that we probably, perhaps if we were thinking more rationally, wouldn't even want to. So there's a true freedom there that comes from keeping God's law. And so we can, I think, have a, you know, if we look at, well, what, what enslaves, what enslaves human minds and true freedom comes from avoiding that. I think that's a, a great point. I think, as you said, Andrew Miller, freedom of speech, religion, and press are about freedom of thought. And I don't know as much about the Magna Carta, but that was a bit that you read, Mr. Palmer, was a beautiful thing. And what's worrying is whenever governments get complete power over freedom of thought, if you will, uh, it has not ended well. <laughs> it has not been well. It, is, it has grinded generations into um, uh, changing not only what they can do, but who they are, you know, who, the, who they think, who their children are. Uh, so that's what we're talking about here. But as you bring out, Jeremiah Jacques and, and Mr., uh, Mr. Palmer, there is more to this than getting back to the founding, you know, like of, of America or the Magna Carta. Uh, because when we went back to the founding, when we went back to the Magna Carta, the world was pretty dark and horrible then also. <laughs> now we're realizing what a stabilizing effect those principles and those freedoms had uh, for a time in, in, in certain parts of the world. Uh, but ultimately, just like you say, and just like is written in No Freedom Without Law, we need something more. We do need that overview from higher up. Uh, we are not going to solve this by getting back to the 90s <laughs> or the 60s or the 1700s. Uh, there's the, we have to learn this lesson uh, that's staring us now in the face that there is no freedom without law. So that booklet, No Freedom Without Law by Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry. Uh, is a good one. That's all the time we do have for this week. Please do email us your thoughts on the program, letters at the trumpet.com. 
And we thank our panel, Richard Palmer, Jeremiah Jacques, Andrew Miller, and Mihailo Zekic. And we thank Parker Campbell and Isaac Lorenz for engineering and production. Thank you for listening to the Week in Review, and we look forward to being back with you again on Trumpet Hour. Trumpet Hour.